0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 12 of the Kate Watch Podcast. There's a special one this week for Europe Day. Happy Europe Day, everybody. Possibly the last Europe Day that the UK will enjoy inside the EU. That's the me. last time we're going to talk about Brexit because we just want to talk about happy things, positive things, things we love about Europe. That's what we're going to do. My name is Chris Kendall. I'm an EU official, but I'm here in a strictly personal capacity. Um, and my name's Steve Bullock, and
1: I'm also here in a strictly personal capacity, and I'm an ex-negotiator for the UK in the EU. And as Chris says, we are having a purely happy episode today. You'll have already been cheered, no doubt, by the rendition of Ode to Joy that played us in. Um, and we are going to talk about Schumann Day and Europe and all the things that we love about it. Consider this to be the shiny happy
0: people of Cakewatch Podcasts. <laughs> Well, we don't always feel super shiny and happy, um, but... um <laughs> fucking rarely do, We're going to make a real effort tonight. <laughs> and I think once we get into the swing of it, it will all come automatically. And if we do, we
1: might even put a cheerier intro <laughs> on the front of it. <laughs> so, Chris, I was wondering,
0: yes. what is Europe Day? So, Europe Day is um, every 9th of May. Um, we celebrate Europe Day. It was the day on which um, Robert Schuman made his famous declaration in 1950, 9th of May 1950, that led to the establishment of the European communities and in the long run to the European Union. And I'd like to talk a little bit about this. Who's, uh, who's Robert Schumann first? Because I thought he was a roundabout designer. <laughs> <laughs> So Robert Schumann, uh, most famous, of course, for having a roundabout in Brussels named after him. Second most famous for being the um, founder of the EU, effectively. He was, um, he was the French foreign minister um, in 1950. Um, he was a French politician, um, but he was one of these classic uh, Central Europeans. He um, was actually born in Luxembourg. Um, to French parents who had been born in Lorraine um, while it was still in France, but then it became Germany because in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, um, Germany annexed um, Alsace and Lorraine. Uh, So he was very much a product of um, Franco-German war, uh, decades and decades of it, and uh, coming from the heart of industrialised Um, Europe um, uh, um, Lorraine being also an industrial centre in in France Um, so he's he's a very interesting uh, man, he he made a speech in Strasbourg Uh, I'm going to do some quotes here um, Steve because I I think um, that these deserve (sighs) to be heard Um, so in in May uh, 1949 um, which is gosh we're almost at the anniversary of it Um, In May 1949, speaking in Strasbourg, he said this. The European spirit signifies being conscious of belonging to a cultural family and to have a willingness to serve that community in the spirit of total mutuality without any hidden motives of hegemony nor the selfish exploitation of others. Do you hear that, Brexiters? (laughs) (laughs) The 19th century saw feudal ideas being opposed and with the rise of national spirit, nationalities asserting themselves. Our century, and of course he was speaking in the 20th century, that our century that has witnessed the catastrophes resulting in the unending clash of nationalities and nationalisms must attempt and succeed in reconciling nations in a supranational association. This would safeguard the diversities and aspirations of each nation, while coordinating them in the same manner, as regions are coordinated within the unity of the nation. Again, <laughs> let me just repeat that, because <laughs> you know that, that's just music to my ears. Safeguard the diversities and aspirations of each nation. This is the vision, safeguarding diversities of each nation. However, while coordinating them in the same manner as regions are coordinated within the unity of the nation. So I don't let anybody tell you that Quite. we didn't know what we were getting into with the European Union. The the founding fathers, and I'm afraid they were all fathers <laughs> of the EU, they were all men, uh, include people um, such as Robert Schumann, um, Alcide Spinelli that we've spoken about, and of course Winston Churchill. And they knew exactly what it was that they were aiming for. It was all about making war impossible in Europe again. Uh, it was all about, establishing a supranational kind of federation. So uh, on, on the 9th of May 1950, as French Foreign Minister, uh, Robert Schuman made this declaration, which, um, put into, uh, put, which put into words these principles of supranational democracy. And what it, what it proposed to do was to take uh, French and German coal and steel production, so f- effectively the engine of war, And to take that out of national control, to pool sovereignty, um, to put that production under a single common high authority, inviting other European nations to join as well, the idea being that um, by pooling, by merging those uh, industrial resources, it became materially impossible for France and Germany to go back to to war with each other. Yeah. How would how would one build the tanks? Literally that, that yeah, simple eleven. Literally. Yeah. You can't build uh, you can't build <laughs> shells and tanks and machine guns um to shoot each other if um, you're um if you've pulled if, if you've pulled the industry. Yeah. Pulled control of the industry. So um finally a, a quote then from the Schumann Declaration itself Europe will not be made all at once or according to a single plan. It will be built through concrete achievements which first create a de facto solidarity. The coming together of the nations of Europe requires the elimination of the age-old opposition of France and Germany. So, you know, um, good stuff. The interesting thing about that
1: is that it will not be made all at once. You know, yeah. the EU, the founding fathers of the EU didn't set out with a vision of how it would be... Precisely what institutional setup it would precisely be in 2018. Mm. And we talked about, about this a lot during the the, the federalist episode a few mm. episodes ago. When you said which had hadn't really hit home with me before that any uh, any true pro-European would always want reform mm. because there's no end state; it's a fundamentally continuing continuing project.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, no, and and uh, as I've been looking over. Um, the um, the Schuman Declaration itself, and and the words of the the founding fathers, you see again and again the word federation. Um, you see you see a, a political project. Yep. This is not some NAFTA. This is not some trade deal. It never was. And yeah, the point, the point, the point wasn't to.
1: Just to pool the coal and steel markets to make them more efficient or effective.
0: No, it was... The, again, um, I know I said I'd done the last quote, but here's another one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's to make war between France and Germany not merely unthinkable, ma- ma- but materially impossible. It's yeah. about ending yeah. war in Europe. That's what it's about. And, I mean, long before the war, the result...
1: I mean, the the revolt of Franco-German uh, conflict had been a, a
0: totally personal thing for Robert
1: Schumann.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it was super personal, because these were people who'd lived through it, and these were people who had been directly affected by it, and, and who, who they, they were not nationalists, because they came from um, mixed backgrounds, and they saw the dangers of nationalism. They had lived through horrors that had resulted from nationalism. So they saw this very much as an evolution uh, uh, that the, the, they saw our civilization as being in constant um evolution towards something better so this is the, when he talks about well we used to have feudalism and yeah. then we've been feudalism and then we've got nationalism well nationalism sucks so we're going to bin that and now we're going to have something else and i mean i'm
1: just, no- just looking through your notes for this Griffin. Nationalism and the annexation of uh, alsace lorraine for for Rob Truman personally meant that he had to move to Luxembourg. <laughs> so I can see why he was pretty pretty bloody bitter about it, actually. Anything that makes you have to move to Luxembourg can't possibly
0: be a good thing. No. You can't don't diss Luxembourg. <laughs> you can't knock Luxembourg. It's a lovely sorry, sorry to the
1: Luxembourgish. It's a it's a it's a fine city.
0: Yeah. I don't. I don't know Luxembourg very well. I've driven through it so many times. I, I just, yeah, it's actually very, very pretty.
1: It's very, very pretty. I think that the uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really very pretty indeed. And uh, I think the the issue with it, other who is really with living it, living there rather than visiting it, in that it's very, very small. I mean, Luxembourg has what two hundred thousand, probably two hundred fifty thousand.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you wait until you hear my. Um what we're going to do, uh, everyone, is we're going to uh, move from the more um, cerebral um, EU policy culture, and we're going to gradually get into more kind of self-indulgent. Well, this is this is what I like about Europe. And uh, once we start talking about places that we like in Europe, if you think that Luxembourg is, I um, <laughs> should we put it parochial. <laughs> yeah, I like. I like. I like parochial. Anyway, um, <clears throat> should we get on well, with those, that, talking what we yeah, like? Should about we get on with the favourites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: so well, you've, st-
0: you've started. Re- you've started really highbrow here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm explaining what what Europe Day is and why we celebrate it. Um, no, no, I mean with your. No, no, I mean with your first choice for questions. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah
1: so yeah the so, first, yeah. first one
0: I thought was wonderful so we, just be, yeah I had,
1: sorry Chris I uh, sorry to interrupt but just before you do this one I want to reassure listeners that there are more trivial ones to come than than, 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 than than this question so it's not going to be another 45 or 50 minutes of uh, of questions like this but Chris what's your favorite
0: EU policy <laughs> See, I, I, I wrote down the list of questions that we were going to answer, answer each other and um, I had in mind that uh, I'd spend a, a cosy couple of hours thoughtfully musing over them and researching them so I could sound super knowledgeable about them. And of course, I, I did it all in five minutes just before we started recording, as usual. Um, but I can, give you, I can give you a bunch of uh, policies that I think are fantastic and I'm not sure which one's my favourite. Um, so one, for example, would be the Bologna Process, which is the um, higher education cooperation, which is um, a wonderful policy uh, that allows um, high degree of cooperation, rec- mutual recognition of qualifications, and so on uh, in higher education right across Europe, and has meant, you know, y- y- it's meant the revival of the old. Concept of universitas, the way universities used to be in the Renaissance and mm. before the Renaissance, the Middle Ages. These were these were uh, they had their own mutual language, which was Latin, and these people would travel between them, and and and, and it was almost a, 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 a if you like a a, su- a supranational European elite that um, didn't respect national boundaries. So the Bologna process, named, of course, after Europe's oldest um, still um, extant university, Bologna, um, is uh, is definitely one of my favourites.
1: Yeah. Your turn. My turn. Enlargement. Enlargement's definitely my favourite policy. Um, <clears throat> I don't buy the... Uh, well, it may have been the reason for the British... Fo- for the British Foreign Office wanting enlargement to, you know, widen rather than deepen Europe. But I think enlargement, enlargement's one of the massive successes of, of the EU, um, particularly for uh, post, post-Soviet, post post-Communist states. You know, if you think of... Think of uh, the Lecluenza speeches in, what, 89? Um... And solidarity, and then think of Poland in the EU, and and I was there. I mean, it was, uh, I was there when when uh, the a 10 joined, and it was the uh, it was a uh, you know it was a, a huge sigh of relief for uh, close, closing a pretty fucking awful chapter finally mm. on uh, on Europe, and and it continues and and it continues with Croatia. I mean. I, Croatia joining was an emotional moment as well. I mean, this is a country mm. that was in, involved in unbelievably brutal war, mm. you know, really, pretty, really, really recently. And, uh, yeah, and I think it's what you talked about, about the, the original purpose of it, uh, uh, is, is peace. And I think it's, it extends peace. Enlargement extends, extends that. I think it's, uh, yeah. it's absolutely wonderful. I really do. Also, I mean, on a technical level... I think enlargement helps remarkable transformations of countries as well, um, and EU assistance and EU policies and the EU and the process of enlargement yeah. is a huge contributor to that as well.
0: So. Yeah, I I, um, I, I, I have complicated feelings about enlargement. I think that it was um, enlargement was a, a moral. Necessity and moral, were polit- political necessity. It had to happen, um, and it was undoubtedly the right thing um, for, for, the, for those countries and for, and for the EU. Um, my it, my issue with it is whether we did the groundwork beforehand. We being the the, the twelve and the fifteen. Um, mm. So I, I as a, as a, as a federalist, I've I've always. Argued that you can't widen without deepening, um, but the deepening that was necessary for enlargement to be um, a rock-solid cast-iron success, well, that didn't happen at Amsterdam and at Nice. Um, well, I think part part of the issue for me was that
1: it had to be done in a in a block with the A10 and. That sh- and I think that should have been avoided. Really, the, the point of the enlargement process is that it's based on individual, uh, individual progress, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the things when people talk about whether Scotland would be at the front or the back of the queue, an independent Scotland would be at the front or the back of the queue. There's no queue. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's no queue at all. Uh, you know, so, some countries have very, very long perspectives. Uh, some countries have much shorter ones. Mm-hmm. Iceland would have had a very, very short one had it continued the, mm-hmm. had it continued the process. Um, so there's no queue. It's based on it's based on individual pro- progress, and I think the situation that the EU found itself in, and the A10 found itself in, was that it really it really had it really had to be all of them all of them together.
0: Yeah, and and I'm because not because it
1: was a political commitment, and it, that isn't. I do I do agree that it wasn't the ideal way to do it, but I think that was the. That was the right way to no, do it. No, but I
0: mean, I'm not, that's, that's not my criticism. My criticism isn't that they all joined at, at, at the same time and all at once or that they should have done more before joining. That wasn't... What I'm saying is that we should have done more. Oh. We, the, the, the 15, had not put our house in order. And, and oh, yeah. That, yeah, that, we'll that, that. that then led to um, an imbalance, an institutional imbalance, um, where the council... Um, as the institution that um, is effectively the, the, the arm of the member states came to take on too much power in relation to the parliament and the commission, and um, that's a success of
1: British foreign policy. Well, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, and and that that I mean, w- w- without getting into that whole discussion again, I, to me, I think that that created pressures which are still. Um, the, the, uh, uh, those those pressures are still being felt in various ways, including Brexit. Oh, we weren't going to mention Brexit, which we're not going to mention. Okay, this is a Brexit-free Brexit podcast. So we've only <laughs> got we've we we've, we've been talking for ages. But we've only mentioned two policies, and I've got a whole bunch of others to talk about. So I'm not going to go into the, anything like the same detail. But we should um, we should give um, hat tips to, for example, reach the uh, EU the EU's policy. Um, to regulate chemicals uh, and just generally EU environmental policy. Envi- yeah, I think know. I can put environmental policy. Raising in quality that. of life and, and living standards for, for all Europeans and also then having that impact around the world because of our global reach. We're raising living standards also for, for our neighbours and for people right around the world. Precisely. And uh, my other one would be development, of course. Yes, I mean, the, that's on my list. The, EU's the,
1: <laughs> the EU is the world's largest, collectively, the world's largest aid donor, and still will be even after yeah. Brexit if it happens, which we're not mentioning. We're not mentioning Brexit. Social chapter? Um, social
0: chapter, absolutely. Um, and, you know, really, um, we've mentioned it before, but it can all be summed up in Article 2 of the Treaty. Mm. Values. Do you, have the, do you have that handy again, Chris? <laughs> you wrote again. Do you want me to edit it in? <laughs> The Union was founded on respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law and respect for human rights, including the rights of persons belonging to minorities. These values are common to the member states in a society in which pluralism, non-discrimination, tolerance, justice, solidarity and equality between women and men prevail. Oh, good stuff. Oh, it is good stuff, good isn't stuff. it? Good stuff. Good stuff. So there you go. Um, I'd love to know which bits p- bits of that people object to. I say. <laughs> which
1: well, you can imagine though, bit of you? that do you not like? What,
0: why do they put women before men? Why can't they put men? Political <laughs> correctness gone mad. You, do-
1: you? Hang on. You're doing. Uh, you're doing uh, uh, the comedian. What's he called? Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Surely. Yeah, you're doing you're doing Stuart Lee's impression of of, of Paul Nuttall oh, from yeah. the UKIPs there. <laughs> Paul Nuttall's of <at> the Ukip's. <laughs> we want the brightest and best. We want <laughs> the brightest and best Beaker people to stay. <laughs> oh, we should link that. That is great. Oh yeah, well will definitely have to link that. Yeah. All
0: okay. Right. Well,
1: should we do next Should we do the next one? Yeah.
0: You do the next question. All right. Um, Your turn. So, um, next question is favorite. Current or recent politician?
1: Well, uh, well, I'm going to sound like I'm being a party stooge here because I am a member of uh, her political party, but m- I'm going to pick Nicola Sturgeon. Oh, good choice. Two reasons. Firstly, that uh, she's the only uh, she's the only government leader in the UK who's shown the slightest bit of leadership leadership and statesmanlike behaviour uh, during the Brexit process. Uh, but also for two other things that she did. Um, the first one is that uh, she, re- when Scotland received 600 uh, refugees, Syrian, re- Syrian refugees a couple of years ago, uh, she wrote a handwritten note to them uh, saying, I'm delighted to welcome you. Scotland is now your home and we are privileged to have you here. I hope you find the peace and safety that you need to rebuild your lives. Best wishes, Nicola Sturgeon. And she kind of r- repeated this. Uh, by writing to every EU citizen in yeah. uh, in Scotland saying, among other things, my message today to EU citizens and to their representatives in Scotland remains simple. Scotland is your home. You're welcome and your contribution to our economy and our society and our culture is valued. God, I mean, it's fair enough. We can try kind of contrast that oh. with, uh, with the UK government. I know. Uh, which has
0: uh, had a specific policy of making people know that exactly the opposite is true yeah. of them. Well, you made you made a, a Freudian slip um, there. I don't know if you noticed, but you said um, leadership. <laughs> I was going to edit that out. Actually, <laughs> I think you should leave it because I think that's perfect for the vast majority <laughs> of um, people who give themselves that type. That yeah. Well, um, that, I think that's a great choice, actually. Awesome. Oh. Uh, I don't, I, I've got on my list, I've got, who, who do I like of the current crop? Well, uh, Caroline Lucas is probably my favourite British politician. And I don't know. I, really, I got retweeted by her. I know, you jammy sod. I know. <laughs> I can your, believe uh, it. No, it was great. It was for your um, tweet last week about the um, Chinese restaurant. That was a good one. Mm. You know, we didn't reference it in our podcast. We should have done. Anyway, Italian restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Going to the Italian restaurant and o- ordering Chinese or, or fighting over whether you should order Chinese or Indian. You, you right. can't have either. It's an Italian. You're getting, none yeah. of You're getting none of it. Speaking of Italians, Emma Bonino. Remember Emma Bonino? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Emma? She Emma Bonino uh, is an Italian politician. She's now a senator. Um, she was a commissioner back oh. in towards the beginning of my career, and um, she was then subsequently also Italian foreign minister. So she's an Italian radical. She's a really. I, I, she is. She is a politician that I have a lot of time for. Um, one of those politicians who uh, makes a lot of sense and also tends to say what they mean. And I think I think this is where we're heading with this, isn't it? We're, we're, we're talking about politicians that <laughs> yeah. generally, um, they say what they don't, mean.
1: L- don't don't lie on an industrial scale.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean... Who
1: are, where available?
0: I'll tell you who my favourite is, and this will come as no surprise to anybody whatsoever, but my favourite... Tisch, European politician uh, Jacques Delors, <laughs> who was um, he was the president of the commission when I when I was first recruited, um, and oh. I did meet him once. And here's my little anecdote, which is that um, <laughs> in one of my very early days working as a civil servant, I was in um, an all night council meeting. Um, back when the council was in the Charlemagne building and it was for the review of the structural funds. So that's the EU's regional policy. And it had got into a really nasty bun fight between the various member states, um, still only 12 at that point. And um, the Irish were Anybody who thinks that the Irish are just going to be walked over or rolled over, it's not going to happen. (laughs) They've never negotiated with the Irish. They know how to do this. They really do. They really do. And it got really really difficult. And the commissioner presiding um, was, I shouldn't say presiding because in those days, of course, the presidency presided. But uh, the the, um, commissioner responsible uh, was a British commissioner. He was called Bruce Millen. not many of you will will remember him, but Bruce Millen was one of the two British commissioners at the time and he was responsible for regional policy. And he was getting nowhere and it, it got to about 2 o'clock in the morning and um, at that point they thought, enough's enough, we'll call, we'll call in Jacques Delors. And Jacques Delors at the time was, was bedridden in hospital with, with absolutely crippling sciatica. He was extremely ill. But they brought him in on a, tre- on a stretcher. Literally, they brought seriously? Jacques Delors in on a stretcher. Yeah, seriously. And he sent everybody out except the ministers, including Bruce Millen. He's basically sent his commissioner, the <laughs> commissioner.
1: Yeah,
0: and about three or four hours later, they came out and they had a deal. And um, that was a pretty interesting experience. There you go for a young official. So yeah, Jacques Delors. Jacques Delors, there you go. Next next question. Excellent. Should we do next? Shall we do another? Next question.
1: If this going well enough to do another one? Let's try another one. Historical, historical figure. Yes. Historical figure, Chris.
0: Historical figure. figure, right, Chris. Okay. Historical figure. Um, now, again, I've, I've jotted down a whole bunch of names here, uh, meaning to go off and do lots oh, of good, research. Uh, I can use one of them because I haven't got one yet, please. <laughs> well, obviously, I've been talking a lot about the uh, founding fathers. So, Robert Schumann and, and Spinelli, and then also, of course, people like Jean Monnet and Conrad Adenauer. And these are all people that I think. Um, we owe a great debt to. um, And they come from all sides of the political spectrum. So people like Schumann and Monet and Adenauer, they were more on the, what we'd call now, the Christian Democrat right, um, uh, whereas people like Spinelli, um, very much on the left. Um, So it was was always a a cross-party thing, um, Mm. giving people um, reason to... View it as a conspiracy of either the left or the right, depending on where they were coming from. But, um, but let's 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 aim let's cast our net a little more widely. So, I've got, for example, Tom Paine. Mm-hmm. Tom Paine's a very interesting, of course, British, but British European too. So we can also have British people in our answers for favourite Europeans. Um, and Tom Paine, um, super interesting character in the in the eighteenth century who spent a lot of time in in revolutionary France. I think he was even a... Wasn't he not even a minister in the revolutionary I, government? I think I think he was a deputy. Yeah. I didn't check yeah. that, but I think he was a deputy, yeah. yes. Yeah. And very much um, influential in the American War of Independence and the, the creation of the United States as well. But Generally, a, a, a real pain in the arse for the establishment, and um, therefore an extremely interesting man. Well, uh, I think
1: pain's a, pain's a very good call, because... Uh, i was trying to think of one, and uh, I wanted to pick. Well, actually, yeah, my historical figure would be everybody from the Enlightenment. I think, um, because I think That's the, the, the
0: well, I've got a great no, one. From the Enlightenment.
1: So, I mean, we could, but we could pick lots of people. We could pick uh, yeah. pick David Hume or Rousseau or Voltaire. Yeah, or, um, or mm. Kant. Mm. Um, but I think that the 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 important thing is that the the, the EU. Is fundamentally an, an Enlightenment project. Yes. Uh, I mean, Enlightenment thought is based on the idea that there is a, for for every genuine problem there is a there is a rational answer. Yeah, you know, for every genuine question. Uh, so for so not not questions of taste or, or preference, but for every every question. There's a, and I mean, one of the great threats. I think, yeah. I think one of the great threats of Brexit, one of the great downsides of Brexit, has been this uh, disavowal of of rationality and disavowal of, of of evidence and and reduction of all questions to questions of questions of preference. Mm. You know, mm. and in that sense, you know that it looks it begins to look like this, the much predicted end of the end of the Enlightenment project. Mm. But how does the how does he respond to that? The EU responds to that by continuing to find answers for genuine questions, by continuing about its business, by
0: producing a new multi-annual financial framework. Article 2 of the Treaty, it doesn't get much more enlightenment precisely. than Article 2 of the Treaty. And, you know, no, the long process, absolutely. just as we mentioned, you know, this is this is the engine room in the Enlightenment, you know. Yes, very much so. And speaking of that, I mean, you, you're absolutely right to talk about Enlightenment figures, but also going back still further to somebody like um, Giordano Bruno I, w- I wanted to mention Giordano Bruno um, was um, uh, burned at the stake as a heretic on the Campo de' Fiori in Rome um, he um, was um, <laughs> I'm going to show my ignorance now, what <laughs> I, <all> I know <laughs> about Giordano Bruno is that he was burned on the stake, uh, burned at the stake on the Campo de' Fiori um, he was um, I think um, a contemporary of people like Galileo Mm. Um, he was, um, a critic of the church. Um, and, um, the reason I choose him is twofold. I mean, it's shocking that I don't know more about him than what I've just said, but, um, <laughs> he must be a good guy if he was burned at the stake by the church, uh, and on the Campo di Fiori, right? Um, we chose, we chose him. So there's this tradition in, um, the College of Europe in Bruges mm. to name your year, your, uh, your promotion i think it's the same in the end actually but you name your year your your promotion after a famous character um, mm. now when i joined the commission um we had a, a a week-long induction which i don't think they do anymore but um we had a kind of week-long induction um and um we decided to call us so we were we were encouraged to find a name for ourselves um, and Giordano Bruno was the name that we chose um, for various n- complicated reasons that I won't actually go into because they, uh, it was more a way of sticking two fingers up at the director of the course. <laughs> 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 I, won't, I won't go into details. That's for another day. It's, it's too long a story and we'll lose our audience. But, um, yeah, Giordano Bruno. And then the other name that I've got on my list, the Gracchi. Classicists, you know who I'm talking about. Mm. tiberius and gaius absolute legends (laughs) tribunes of the people um promoters um advocates of uh land reform um basically pulled the roman republic uh, down around their ears and um yeah Uh, but in terms of using their position as aristocrats um using the system to agitate and advocate for the rights of people who were far less fortunate themselves. Very interesting, very interesting people died horribly <laughs> for their pains. Um, as almost all good history, good people in history. Not have. quite as horribly as Giordano Bruno, it has to be said, but still quite horribly. Mm. Yeah, so there you go, the gracchi
1: Okay, should we do our next question? Our next question. I like our next question.
0: We should just preface this. We should say, if anybody is still listening, in the unlikely <laughs> yeah. event that anybody is still listening... Of
1: course they're listening.
0: What better thing is there to do on, to celebrate Europe Day than to listen to Cakewatch? Um, uh, the- we're now moving into the more self-indulgent, sort of non-political bit of the podcast, where we just Ooh, talk well about stuff. Well, you say that.
1: Oh, you say that? Well,
0: food can be political, can it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: everything can be political. Uh, so the next question, wh- what's your favourite animal? Uh, so th- we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't get the rules straight before we did this. actually. Oh no, we didn't. You might uh, have to so do we're, Euro- we're talking about, Euro- we're, talking about Euro- we're talking about European Europeans yeah.
0: here. Yeah.
1: Um, so w- uh, the next one is, uh, what's your favourite European animal, Chris?
0: Oh, is it? I didn't know. I forgot yeah. that one.
1: Okay. This is really annoying. This is actually really annoying because my favourite animal is not European. So I've had to think of well, gonna one.
0: Well, are going to have to come up with a new one. It's got to be a badger, surely. A badger? <laughs> it's got to be.
1: Obviously. Why a badger? It's a badger. It's a badger. It's a badger. <laughs> it's a badger. Well, well, my, my, my favourite European animal by some distance is the wild boar. Uh-huh. And yeah. the reason for that will be clear. Well, Astrid, surely.
0: Uh, am, I, am I giving the game away?
1: No, the, uh, it'll be clear <laughs> clear when you hear my answer to the next question,
0: uh-huh. which is food. Food. Favorite European food. So, curry doesn't really count, though it's sort of sort of European now. With well, curry verst I suppose, would count, wouldn't it? Oh, I do love a curry verst. <laughs> I, do, I do. I've got love a curry really burst. long list. Of, of, I've <laughs> got a really long short list. It's more you of a long quite, list. I'm quite. Graph the concept of favorite here have you? no i'm 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 really torn this is tricky yeah you, you should go first i think should you i've got it down i've got it down to, I've got it down to two. Shit, seriously
1: yeah i've got it down to two Come on, uh peachy with wild boar ragu so peachy is a, a kind of thick rough pasta much beloved in central and southern tuscany um and they serve it with, yeah, a wild boar ragu. Why uh, do you like is that? About the be- which, as well, is about the best thing I've ever tasted. And it's also hugely sustainable. Wild boar is wild boar is a sustainable foodstuff because uh, the people who catch wild boars have to have to maintain the population at sustainable levels, um, and they can't kill them horribly because it uh, it ruins the flavour. So they have to kill them humanely as well, um, and I'm going to, we're going to get letters from us Italian, Italian Italian Green Party members going, that's absolute bullshit, Steve, they're incredibly cruel. Um, yeah, and it's just the most absolutely delicious thing ever. Um, preferably sat outside, well, on a piazza uh, in a little hilltop village is, is where it's best eaten. I have yeah. made it at home. And it is still delicious, but it's
0: not quite the same as I think, in yeah, I a theatre
1: in a little hilltop
0: village. I think you know, I think for for, 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 the, for these, when we're going to talk about food and we're going to talk a little bit about drink, and I think for all of these, I think it has to be taken as read that the eat, eating these things in the place where they are made sort of always adds about sort of plus 20 deliciousness points.
1: Yeah, well, it's terroir, isn't it? Yeah, terroir, right,
0: isn't it? terroir. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No which is a very, very kind of very uh, very hipster concept now, but okay. is, uh, is not really, really a hipster concept It's it's, it's exactly you say it simply adds twenty percent more deliciousness and my second is all cheese, pretty much all pretty much all cheese I, there's there is i thought <laughs> I also thought I, I, I really loved cheese, Well, I do love cheese, I absolutely adore cheese, but I thought I was a bit of, a bit of a cheese aficionado until I met a real one a real cheese aficionado, who's a friend of mine who lives in London. Um, And he said me stuff that, um, yeah, made me realise there was a whole world of cheese I didn't know about, and some of it was quite disgusting. So I'm going to say almost all cheese, not necessarily 100%.
0: Cheese, cheese is a great choice. I mean, you can't knock that. I mean, that, that is a good choice. Well, There's it is very because, European. It is because
1: different cheeses from different places.
0: Quite a European.
1: Uh, all have sweet, isn't it? Uh, all have a place, you know. So, you know, you've got the absolute wonderful, wonderful variety of of of, uh, of English, Welsh, and, and Scottish and Irish cheeses, um, and they're all great for different things. But then, and it's not just about you know quality or artisanaliness. I mean. German, you know, German smoked cheese is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, what
0: well, are you saying that that's um, not? Qua- yeah, well, yeah.
1: quality it industry, and
0: artisanally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, uh, you know, also a uh, Dutch, you know, more processed cheeses uh, have their uses as well. You know, you know, for every cheese, there's a, there's no bad cheese. There's just uh, it's, it's just about finding.
0: Oh don't don't let a don't don't let a Dutch person catch you saying saying anything oh, about yeah. I mean you no, know they, like they the have computer, but they have they have Gouda um, I don't even know how to pronounce it properly, Gouda or Gouda. But anyway, they have Gouda <laughs> shops where, you know you walk in and they'll be like, Oh, would you like some of the sort of some of the nineteen twenty three Gouda which have, with the extra you know, so, I mean they they get super
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm definitely not slagging off Gouda. Um My point is that, you know, even new processed, essentially processed Edam is still legitimate cheese. That's my point. You know, that that's what's so wonderful about cheese. From the incredibly strongest, stinkiest one that you have, just a, a knife point of, right down to the
0: plastic cheese that you slap on your burger. It's all just absolutely amazing. So I... Uh, my list... <laughs> my short list is... Well, I, how, I, how many? Come
1: I've on, how ten, many? Well, 11. Eleven. <laughs> That's a fucking <laughs> menu. Not a fair. I mean, I'm
0: going to skip. So let me. Okay, let me <sighs> let me cut to the chase here. Uh, so, um, so obviously, um, there's there's the regional specialities from my uh, my home region um, on the German side, which is Swabia, Schwaben, where you have such wonderful delicacies as Spätzle, which are in my Twitter bio which are like little homemade egg noodles. Um, and if you fry them up with a bit of onion and cheese, oh, basically. oh, shabba good. And then you've got moltashen, um, which uh, literally translated means gob pockets.
1: Oh, lovely. That's and they're like
0: massive raviolis. They're really good. Oh, they're so good. And those sort of stuff with kind of like walking oh it's just so good um last, i've just, got just i just say so far it's not peachy with wild boar ragu is it <laughs> don't knock it seriously <laughs> seriously don't don't knock it till you tried it uh and you should try it you should come out i'll make some case special for you one of these days um and there's a promise that you will not write find on the side of a bus um i have once had the most <laughs> astonishing pizza in sicily in syracuse in sicily Thank when God so
1: that I thought you were going to say Schwabia. <laughs> no, I did pretty well.
0: In um I was well, actually uh, I'll come to that. Um in um Syracuse I was interrailing and I had a I went to a, I went to eat a pizza and I saw on a menu something called a pizza inglese, which means English pizza. I thought what well, well, I've got to have that. You've got to see what that is. And it was <laughs> oh a fuck. full English breakfast on a pizza. <laughs>
1: In Sicily. Yeah. But in Sicily. The people, the people who. The, people,
0: <laughs> the Sicilian that did that. I know. Could, could loo- lose his
1: citizenship it was for a that, you
0: It was amazing. Oh, okay, hey. But I tell you what they did. They, they, they switched. Well, did you enjoy an egg on a pizza, actually? Well, mm-hmm. it was very good. And what they did was they switched the. Um, but they'd switched the beans for peas. So they used peas instead of beans, which was a bit oh. odd. <laughs> well, but then, have, the whole no, thing was odd. Fucking baked beans would have been more odd, mate. <laughs> fucking hell. It was terrific. And then from the sublime to the ridiculous, or rather from the ridiculous to, to the sublime, next on my list is as much as the herring that you get, um, the cured herring that you get um, in Belgium and uh, Holland around. Oh, I can see you making grim- grimacing um Steve, you you, you you No,
1: sorry, I was still thinking about thinking about the full English breakfast pizza. Sorry. I'm completely distra- as a lover of Italian food, I'm just utterly, utterly obsolete. It, it was wonderful. It <laughs> was such a lovely find. I did think though that, that actually I mean, it's it's not that far removed. The spirit of Europe. I always think, well I always think, I always forget of I often want to forget a carbonara when I have a hangover and I always think of it as sort of breakfast pasta good bacon and
0: eggs. <laughs> you know? Exactly. If you, yeah, make your, yeah. if you make your carbonara really badly and all the eggs turn into scrambled eggs. Oh, no. So oh, you don't no. want that. Um, yeah, but um, I was talking about the herring. So the, the whole, there's the whole Baltic, North European thing about um, herring, oh, which yeah. I, I once, really
1: love. I once got taken out, uh, taken out, taken for a night out in Walsall by a Polish friend of mine uh, who'd moved back from Brussels to Walsall when I was visiting. Mm. Um, and uh, he took me for a night out, I was standing at bars eating... Eating uh, eating fish, oh. I have to say, you know, he didn't. When he told me that was what we we're going to do, I wasn't I wasn't massively <laughs> looking forward to it. I have to admit, um, <laughs> I was looking forward to seeing him because he's a great guy. But and, and the beer that you have with the fish, I was looking forward to. But um, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, have, so they they have this thing fish, where yeah, you go with fish. Well, they have this thing where you go around the you go around the bars. And, you, you, you know, you just stop for one, uh, yeah. one, one little plate at
0: each bar, you know, instead of yeah. dinner,
1: and it was really fantastic. It was, a, it was a, t- a Polish tradition I didn't know about. It was really
0: great. Well, I had a very similar experience in Stockholm once where they do the, um, they, instead of a chip van, they do a kind of um, a fried herring and mash <laughs> and lingonberry sauce. But, um, oh,
1: nice. Oh, it's really
0: good. They a little paper plate oh, nice. with yeah. a dollop of mash, lingonberry sauce, and a fried herring. Oh, so good.
1: Oh, this reminds me of the Christmas markets. I always love the um, uh, Christmas markets in Brussels. I always love the, uh, the the flat. You know, a little paper yes. bowl with with flat, which is uh, potato bacon. It's carbonara, actually. Yes, it's
0: potato carbonara. Yes, <laughs> but with but with Rebloch, Well, that that brings me to Swabian Rebloch. pizza. <laughs> oh no! No, 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 Sarah, hear me out. Hear me out. In in the words of Nigel Farage. No, no, no. Let me finish. <laughs> So if we know Strasbourg, anybody who works in the EU, you know Strasbourg. And you go to Strasbourg, and Strasbourg has um, some some great food. And one thing that they do is the tart flambé, um, which in the local dialect is called flamkorten. Well, hello, flamkorten. Flamkorten are actually Swabian. The Alsatians pinched them. Flamkuchen is like um, it's like a, a, a very flammeng- thin...
1: Flamkuchen aren't Swabian. Flamkuchen are Flemish. Everybody knows they're Flemish. What? Yes. They're from Schwabisch
0: Hall. They, you, yeah, they're a right. very thin base with, with, yeah. sour, with sour cream and onions and lardons, And they're not Flemish. Yeah. It's f- the flam is flame. It's not Flemish. It's not flam as in Flamingen. It's flam as in Flammen not flamen, but flamen.
1: <laughs> no, I know that it's not. Flanders listeners, kuchen. listeners, you can settle not, this. Yeah, I know it's not Flemish cooking. I know, I know that. No, it's a Flemish thing. I thought it was a Flemish thing. That's why. That's why you get them in Lille. We're not even halfway through. Traditionally my Traditionally part of Flanders. Oh my <laughs> Christ! We're not halfway through the list, or halfway through the list of questions.
0: Not through halfway okay. through my list of pod, of, 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 of food. And okay, back on. Bureki. What's that? Bureki is a Cretan uh, speciality of... It's a kind of potato and courgette cake. It's like a masaka, right. but fun it's five. just got... It's very nice. It is. I think we should move 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 on rapidly, because it's really good. Smorgas torte. Smorgas torte. I'm sorry, Scandinavia.
1: I think that's smergus, actually.
0: Sme- smor I don't know. Well, listen, what this is, it's a savoury cake, and we are a cake podcast. Mm, savoury um, cake. I actually knew, I know this through through the Finns. I used to work for the Finnish commissioner uh, in his cabinet, and um, one day one of the Finnish colleagues brought in a smorgas torte, um, which he, they, they taught me the Swedish because the Finnish was unpronounceable. And what it is, is it's like a massive multi-layered sandwich of salmon and dill and cucumber and radish and beetroot and wonderful things and it's all completely covered in sour cream, and it just looks like a cake, and you take a big slice of it, and you eat it, and it's the best thing you've ever eaten. It's no, incredible. no, it isn't. That sounds revolting, Chris. That' It's sounds unbelievably nice. i
1: nice. draw your attention to the Italian muffaletta, which is the same kind of thing, but with nicer bread and nicer ingredients. Italian, what have you come up with food-wise? Italy from set, it, I'm afraid. I'm, sti- I'm sticking with my Pichu and wild boar ragu. Nothing what? you've said has dissuaded me.
0: Well you, hold on because you may be happy so you finished this incredibly long list of food yet or no no i'm nearly no, I'm nearly there. I did actually skip a couple um just in the interest of speed and taste um i'm This is a country that's not in the eu but it is in Europe um, and um, I challenge anybody to deny it, and it is a country which has the most fantastic cuisine. It's one of my very favorites, and I'm just putting their entire cuisine into my list of favorite foods. And the country is Georgia. Ah, good call. Georgia, what? I well,
1: if it in Europe, yes. Is it though? Yes. Europe is east yes. of the Uralv? No, Urals. Yes. And it, no, Caucasus. East of the Caucasus
0: and south of the Caucasus. And it's south of the Caucasus. Well, it's arguable that its neighbours aren't in Europe, but it is in Europe. Okay, I'll give you that. And it's got really lovely food. Which it is-
1: has got lovely food. It really has. I've only been there very briefly, but it has got lovely I food. I mean,
0: you can't argue with a, a cuisine that has aubergines with walnut dip and pomegranates, and at the same yeah. time, they can produce the mo- cheesiest bread on wor- in the world. I mean, they've got cheesy bread, it's <laughs> so cheesy. I mean, and this is the starter. and They'll bring it out, and you'll you'll start eating their cheesy bread, kachapuri and you will be floor. You're on the floor because I mean, it, it 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 it'll kill an elephant. <laughs> and then they bring out, and you've eaten. You've stuffed yourself with kachapuri because you're so hungry. And then they start bringing out all these little delicacies, little little shavings of aubergine, grilled and rolled into little tight sort of curls topped with little... i like, I've just stuffed myself on cheesy bread. You can't be giving this to me now.
1: This is, this, but this is what makes food good. You know, cheesy bread should be cheesy. How many times have you bought cheesy bread and found out it's not very cheesy? This drives me nuts. If you buy cheese bread, it should be fucking cheesy. You need to go and to, I to Georgia. It, but, but I think all the, all the cuisines... <laughs> Well, all the cuisines that are brilliant deliver on things like that. Yes, you know, Bel- Belgian cuisine delivers on this as well. You know, they go it's beef stew in beer with chips, <laughs> and, and when it arrives, it is that, and it's often still in the cooking pot.
0: Oh, and it, oh. that could yeah. Come it come in there actually, too. you know,
1: now I think about it, carbonade flamande.
0: That uh, should be on the list, shouldn't it? It should be on the list, on the list but- definitely. Listen, shall I get to my absolute absolute top right. favourite, my final my final entry? Oh,
1: was this in reverse order, was it? Sort of.
0: I don't know. This, I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure. I'll change my mind in a minute. But this is my absolute top favourite of all time. Um, it is the Commission Canteen Spaghetti Pesto.
1: Oh, yes. I totally agree. It's outstanding. It's absolutely outstanding.
0: But... It was better in in the good old days. It was better before the change <laughs> provider.
1: I yes. agree as well. Absolutely, I completely agree. And You know why? It's heavy on the oil. Yes. In it, um, and so they should be. <laughs> this yes. makes it. This makes it better. Yes. And and they don't. It doesn't come all mixed in. No, no, it's
0: all made absolutely fresh. You know. Oh.
1: No, but also they just dump a big ladleful on the top. For so some bits, are incredibly intensively pestoey. Right. And some bits are less so, and it's, yeah. No, I totally restaurant. agree. I think it's marvellous. I really do. I was gutted to find out that the
0: European Parliament canteen doesn't have a kind of equivalent, so... No, you can't argue with it. It's also the cheapest thing there. It's brilliant. It's like my staple.
1: Yeah, no. It was for I me am when I worked... pesto. It was for pesto. me when I worked at the Commission as well. Absolutely. It was fantastic.
0: All right, shall we move on to puddings? Puddings, so we're still... <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe you put in two food categories. You... <laughs> Listeners, you see where my priorities lie. Well, I'm going to go British for this apple crumble. <gasps> Ooh, interesting. Yeah, the best apple
1: crumble is the best pudding.
0: You can't argue with that. I mean, that is pretty good. And they do they do it in um, le pain quotidien, don't they? They call it le crumble. Mm. It's a it's le, cr- a-
1: le crumblers have become kind of uh, quite chic and they chic. Have. Yeah, yeah, across It shouldn't Europe, be actually.
0: a chic dish. It shouldn't properly. Well, crumble. I
1: did have one. I did have one in Brussels that was uh, um, a summer fruits crumble with white chocolate in it.
0: What that's Get this abomination away from me.
1: Well, I know, but it was really good. But it still wasn't as good as my mum's apple crumble.
0: I'm
1: I'm almost completely with you, but needs some rhubarb. Ah, rhubarb's evil. (laughs) Oh. I've never been able to eat rhubarb. I saw Day of the Triffids when I was too young <laughs> to see Day of the Triffids. And since then, rhubarb's always, uh, rhubarb <laughs> always reminded me of that, so I, I tend to stay away from it. Rhubarb reminds you of triffids. It does, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't even better? like to see... Oh.
0: Well, then well no,
1: because there were rhubarb plants at the bottom of my dad's garden, and I used to think they were triffids, and would get scared every time I went near them. So it's just, yeah, it's
0: just <laughs> I think it's an evil plant. Wow. Well, okay, um...
1: <laughs> or cheese. Well, my second one was cheese because I would I would generally cheese rather have a, a cheese plate than than a than a pudding. To be honest, cheese isn't a pudding. So, Sorry, cheese
0: is, cheese is my second choice. of both I had a really long list of, of puddings, but I have actually narrowed it down to three. So you know that's not bad, is it?
1: Still not getting the favorite thing though.
0: No, no, I've got a favorite. So uh, in third place, Kaiserschmarrn. Do you know Kaiserschmarrn? Oh. Mm. I heard their first album, but then I, I kind of lost <laughs> track of them. <laughs> Kaiserschmarrn, are, um, uh, it's a sort of Austrian thing, Austro-Hung- uh, yes, Austro-Hungarian thing. Uh, it's basically just chopped up pancakes, fried up with icing sugar and a bit of, sort of plum compote. It's pretty oh, nice. nice. Yeah,
1: it's oh, really, really nice. Although I, although, this, although I have to say this... this, this Continental European thing with icing sugar, I don't get. I've never got used to that. I don't want to sound like a parochial parochial Britisher.
0: But, um... Flaked yeah, almonds as to... well, maybe a bit of flaked almonds? Ooh,
1: oh, so flaked almonds, flaked almonds lovely. Oh, yes, very nice.
0: My second... Uh, my second favourite pudding... Um... L'incontournable... Tatata. Mmm.
1: Yeah, I, I have to say I stumbled over that while thinking about apple crumble,
0: and it was close. Oh, I do like I do like a tart Tatin, if it's been properly, yeah, me too. You know, and I like all of them. The
1: I like all of them. I like the I like the dirt cheap a bit chewy, the cheap ones oh. in
0: bistros, and I like the, yeah, the fancy best. ones. Yeah, Yeah, a little a bit all, chewy. You know, every every tart is brilliant. Oh. Yeah. And my number one top favorite pudding, and this is going to be a bit. I mean, this is a bit of a cheat because there is actually two puddings. <laughs> English soup What's English soup? Zuppa inglese It's an ah. Italian dessert Zuppa inglese which means English soup which is basically trifle and that's a roundabout and slightly poncy way of saying actually my actual favourite pudding is trifle it's trifle
1: <laughs> Nothing wrong with trifle
0: You simply can't go wrong with a decent trifle No it's true no, my, my, my mother-in-law makes trifle every Christmas and it is a delight I have to say So, I mean, there's a a theme emerging, which is that um, there are going to be, I mean, okay, I mean, we're a little bit biased because we are actually both British. But, I mean, there are going to be lots of British choices in these things. And because Britain is European and Britain makes a fantastic contribution to European culture and food and stuff. Exactly. And so we should move to drinks. Drinks. What are you what drinking are you going, right but, now?
1: Well, well, you go, no, no, you go first on this one, because whatever you choose, you're wrong. Because I've got a winner
0: here. <sighs> I've got... So pre- I'm, prepare to be wrong. This is a take, really Take as long line. as you
1: want to be wrong, right, but okay. you will well, be.
0: Okay, sit back and prepare to, <laughs> to, to listen to me being wrong at length. So and you will revel in your wrongness. So obviously, um, <laughs> so one is a kind of generic... I mean, I'm going to be specific about the generic... Um, which is that it 's what it's obviously <laughs> it 's wine it 's your local wine so it 's wherever you happen to be the wine that they produce locally that you 're sitting there sipping in a local establishment that's that 's obviously one of the greatest drinks but for me specifically um, I'm. Uh, it has to be the local wine that we produce in our area of Germany um, tollinger Lemberg, which is a kind of very light red um, uh, which is um, drunk very young and uh, it's um, you w- will find it very hard to find um, in any other part of Europe because it's very much produced locally and sold locally and consumed locally. Mm. Mm. That's how wine should be. It's lovely. So that's my first. And my second is... Um, well, that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> is, that, is it? Oh, okay. And my second <laughs> is, is, is um, uh, we're throwing back to good old Giordano Bruno. Now, if you were Giordano Bruno and you were burned at the stake on the Campo de' Fiori, for your beliefs um how would you like to be remembered well i'm sure he would agree that there's nothing no better way of remembering giordano bruno than by sitting on the campo de fiori in rome and raising a campari soda to his memory and looking at the place where he was burned to death in a horrible agony so um um, campari soda
1: well that's wrong
0: i mean that's actually wrong as well i'm not even joking but okay (laughs) My third... <laughs> all right, try this one. My third... Well, this
1: one's better than the first two. You, I, think yeah, I, gonna, think I think you're going to like this one. very badly so far.
0: You're going to like this one a little bit more, but probably only a little bit more. So the third is... um is Pivo, which, as you know, yeah. is Czech beer, yeah. Um mm. And, um I mean, I'm a German who lives in Belgium, and therefore I should never... And also I'm half British, so I should never concede that anybody else has got the best beer, obviously. But there's something quite special about being in one of those pivnitsa in, 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 in Bohemia where you sit there and you're eating it. I mean, I'm getting, getting back to food and I would have put this on my list too. But A massive, great big dumpling, Knedli- what do they call it? Knedlitsky? Anyway. Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, with um, with some meat and some rich sauce, and you're drinking an enormous, great big, ice cold, bubbly, refreshing Czech lager. So I'm, I'm sorry, Steve, but I do like do like a nice, refreshing lager. And um, somehow it tastes all the better for being served by somebody who comes and marks your beer mat with a little pencil mark. And then at mm, the end what uh, like to do with Kelch yeah. in uh, Cologne yeah. yes well Kölsch would be another candidate very similar, but yeah there you go. Uh, I've got my absolute favorite, but I'm going to wait for you to tell me tell me yours
1: okay well that, well your last one was an improvement on the others it was wrong obviously <laughs> um, but it wasn't as wrong as the other two, which were very wrong because obviously I mean absolutely without doubt, the winner in this category is Belgian beer. I mean, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, Belgian beer is just absolutely remarkable in every respect. They are... <clears throat> well, Belgium has a population of 10 million people, around about 10 million people, um, and there are well over a 1,000 Belgian beers produced, different Belgian beers produced each year. Uh, it has the most beers produced per head of population of anywhere in the world. And, uh, and they're all different. They're all absolutely different. I mean, they also produce shit pills for people who like lager like you. Um, and even their pills is is, is outstanding. Um, and <coughs> There are differences between the pills as well. In fact, actually, the, some of the fiercest arguments you'll hear in Belgium are people arguing about whether uh, Cristal or Mars is the better pills, which I always think is really amazing because they're, you know, really almost identical. Well, they are. But they're incredible incredible numbers of beers, but incredible numbers incredible numbers of types of beer as well. So you have so many visitors who come to Brussels. I have so many visitors who come to Brussels and say, well, you know, I'm just not that into beer. And you say, well, okay, what do you like? And what almost whatever they say, you can find them a beer that they'll, they'll probably like. Um, and almost all of it is brewed properly. Most of it's unfiltered, which is much better and actually can um, make sure that uh, you keep all of the nutrients and goodness from the beer as well if it's unfiltered. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely amazing. They've been doing it here for um, since time immemorial. Uh, and they still make the kind of beer which they think is uh, where beer originally came from, which is spontaneously fermenting beer. Lambique. Lambique, exactly. And I'm drinking a bit of that. With uh, raspberries in it, right now actually, which I'm drinking a Linderman's framboise. Which yeah, is I'm quite envious, actually. I delicious like, on I a hot like night. That, apps, has,
0: that's a pretty good choice. I, I do like those Belgian fruit beers. Um, and the best, and the very best thing
1: about it is that if you go out beer tasting, or if it's also called to the pub, it's a cultural <laughs> event. You're you're participating in culture by drinking Belgian <laughs> beer.
0: You make an impassioned and highly cogent case. Thank you. However, it has to be said that the best drink in Europe is a cup of tea. Oh,
1: yeah. If we're talking non booze, you're probably right. Yeah, it's,
0: it just can't be. It's the best beverage in the world. I mean, it is. It just is. The refreshes without intoxicating. It's, you can't. You can't beat a cup of tea yeah right. although you do need proper milk for it which is yeah no i mean they, you know achieve. not yeah, it has to be done properly it must be done properly. shouldn't and it a shouldn't be the glass is, is worse than anything i mean you know hm? well not anything well it's not of bad as rickets <laughs>
1: <laughs> right okay well yeah well okay well we've got two there that's not that aren't wrong that's that's a start um now we 've got two categories next, Chris. Oh, yeah. um, and I, now you had a classical education, and i i didn 't really, so I suspect yeah I, I suspect we mean different things by this, possibly um, so you put music and song oh, favorite music and favorite yeah. song which I think I think in I, I suspect is your way of saying classical music and pop song. <laughs>
0: Well, I suppose so. I mean, I, that that's certainly how it's ended up being in my... In my in <laughs> yeah, well, I, I suspected I, it might be. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could, you could go with smooth Belgian jazz for
1: music. Well I'm, going to, well, I'm going to surprise you by having a bit of classical music, but you go first.
0: Well, I had, to, I had a little bit of a think about this, and um, I came down with a sort of toss-up between two. And One would be... Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is something that I feel is very much on my mind at the moment. I went for an absolutely incredible walk through the woods um, the other day. When was it? Sunday. No, Saturday. Real just, you know, the woods just coming to life. Um, And it just... There's nothing like it—a North European wood in the springtime, and the flowers, and the leaves, and the abundance, and the, just the vigour of it—and and that is a piece of music that very much um, always puts me in mind of that. Whenever I hear it, it sort of feels mm. like I'm there. So there's that running through wheat like, fields. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so I, whenever I hear Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, I picture Theresa May running through a wheat field. No, I don't. I picture myself in a a very typical North European landscape. So that that is that. But ultimately, I has to be the European tradition of um, choral music um, in in churches. um, That you know, um, uh, a piece of Bach choral music sung by a choir in a cathedral doesn't get more european than that it's pretty it's pretty visceral actually that sort of thing mm.
1: you don't realize it until you actually yeah i, I don't think re, i don't think recording ever does it justice no
0: it's incredible and, and, and there's nothing like actually participating like being being one of the choir being singing it well i don't think anybody would want me to participate in that <laughs> episode, I,
1: think, I think that would ruin everyone's evening <laughs> but so i think just, i'll have you, to you take your dip- word for that i'm not going to pass the i'm not going to pass the audition for that i can tell you yeah my howl and wolf impression is
0: not going to get me get me into the Brussels <laughs> Symphony choir yeah, yeah. So. well i haven't done it for many years but it's it's um you feel a connection <clears throat> to the European past and you can't sing a piece of choral music without feeling european you can't you just can't you can't be a nationalist little Englander. And sing in a, you know e- even if it's a an English composer if you're singing a piece of talent you can't do that without feeling part of a wider European cultural stream. You know, you I'm not can't. sure that many I'm not sure many
1: UKIP members do sing in church choirs. I have to say,
0: mm. but you know this is for me. when when I I, I cannot understand people who um, deny the existence of a European. Culture of, of, of something that we share, a cultural identity that we share. Mm,
1: mm. When when, yeah, you, when you look
0: at mm. when you look at cathedrals, or when you listen to choral music by Bach, this this is something that we all own and belongs to all of us. It's not something that we have borrowed. It's not you know, it's not like listening to. I mean, I, I love Indian classical music, but it's not part of our tradition. It's something that has. Oh you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to enjoy it and appreciate it, but it's not part of our tradition mm. in the same way as... No, but it's, no, but it's so clear. Ask any musicologist or, or,
1: uh, or, or music student, and they'll tell you, no Bach, no Beatles. Mm. Simple as that, you know? Yeah. yeah.
0: So there you go. That's my choice.
1: Well, I think that was a very good one, Chris, actually. Mine is mine's a bit different. Mine's Concerto de as by Joachim Rodrigo. Preferably the version played by John Williams. Um, so obviously, I had to get had to get a bit of guitar into the classical
0: section. But what
1: is what I love about this is it's the connection between folk music and uh, and classical music. Hmm. So it's entirely based on figure on flamenco playing and flamenco melodies, um, and turned into a beautiful, absolutely beautiful concerto, which Just is completely beautiful. which. It's completely of the place. I mean, you, you can't help but think of Spain mm. and think of, think of Andalusia when you hear it, you know? Mm. And my other choice is all of Django Reinhardt, speaking of smooth Belgian mm. jazz. Well, this is not smooth Belgian jazz. This is particularly not smooth. Good choice. Um, <clears throat> because, again, it makes you think of where it's from. It makes, it, makes you think of the of, uh, Hot Club de Paris. It makes you think of Paris. It makes you think of Montmartre. And it makes you think of the the belly Epoch, you know, uh, when the world was getting better, briefly, <laughs> between the wars. Um, and yeah, also, I mean, one of the most remarkable guitar players yes. of all time, w- with only two working fingers on his left hand. He was. Oh, uh, really? I didn't know that. Do you not know that? No, no, that's that's the most incredible thing about him. Is he's really one of
0: the fastest guitar players uh, of all time. Oh, and, now that's embarrassing. That is. And no, <laughs> yeah, he only, no I feel really. So his,
1: so his, 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 uh, he was a he was a Belgian gypsy, and his family survived by selling plastic flowers, cellophane flowers, and his uh, one of the. Now, what's the story exactly? Either his or one of his family's caravan caught on fire with these cell- incredibly flammable cellophane flowers, and he uh, and he narrowly escaped from it. Um, and but as a result of that, the uh, small and ring finger on his left hand were effectively crippled, but he was actually bizarrely lucky in that they'd lock, locked into position, so he could still use them to finger chords, oh. but, only, but only where they were. He couldn't actually move them individually. Mm. So this is very handy for that, for the kind of music, but mm. uh, then again, he kind of invented the kind of music that he uses. Um, I'm speaking, <laughs> The guitarists will know what I'm talking about here, but I always put a chord diagram up in the program notes. But this actually um, this works very well for the sort of uh, ninth chord that, uh, that that kind of jazz mm. uses, in that he could still, he could still play that chord. Um, but the remarkable thing is that he managed to play these incredible lead single-note guitar lines um, that at a really incredible pace, unamplified as well. He used, they used these special Selma guitars uh, with moustache bridges and D-shaped uh, sound holes that were, were were designed to be particularly loud as they could be, to cut through a, you know, a loud cafe without amplification. Um, but yeah, and he played them all with, with two fingers and just adapted his technique and wasn't oh. held back by it at all. It was a really, really remarkable, really, really remarkable Amazing. position. Good choice. And of course, I mean, he made the, his, the, his best work was with Stefan Grappelli, who was an in, incredibly rare jazz violinist. Mm. I mean, you just don't get that many jazz violinists and. Stefan was just absolutely sublime. So. Was he Belgian? No, he was French. French. Mm. And it's not clear that Django was Belgian because they were uh, they were uh travelers. Mm. Um, and they traveled back and forwards across the French and Belgian border. I mean, he was born in Belgium though.
0: Well Belgium has a rich tradition of uh jazz musicians.
1: Toots oh, to Thielemans. Yeah, toots Thielemans, But absolutely, and the the um the the music schools here are absolutely second to none. I work with lots of musicians who mm. who go to the music schools here, and they are just absolutely, absolutely outstanding. Uh, the 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 pool of talented session players who've you know just learned mm-hmm. music brilliantly is is huge in Belgium.
0: Mm. So the, oh. the next question was was then sort of mo- moving on from music in general. Was is there a specific song? or a piece of music that you would say, yeah, that's my favourite piece of European music. That's something that means a lot to me. Oh, me? Sorry. yeah, uh- <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else yeah.
1: <laughs> um Yeah, I got uh, Glossally by Sigur Now, this isn't an EU. They're not an EU band, of course. Sigur they they're an Icelandic band, so they're an EEA band. So European... But still European, absolutely. Um yeah, so I picked I mean I absolutely love cigaroves, but i picked Glossily, and the reason I picked Glossily is I was once had to go to a meeting in the south of Lithuania. Um so I'd flown to, to Riga and there was a bus laid a little mini bus laid on and went out to go to take me from Riga to, to uh I think it was Daugavpils in the in the south of Lithuania. And um it was a complete whiteout. It was minus 23. <laughs> and, um, aside, from, aside from nearly dying uh, by trying to find a blues club in minus 23, which turned out to be closed, and then having a little sit-down and realising that if I had a little sit-down, I would probably freeze to death. Um, aside from that, my abiding memory from it is I'd just bought the album Tack by Sigur Ros, and listening to that in this perfect total white out, this beautiful landscape, totally, totally white out from this little little minibus uh, going across Lithuania. Um, yeah, yeah, it was That's just amazing. Great story. Um, but, what I, but it completely changed the way I think about music because it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly heavy. And we normally think of, you know, uh, heavy, i.e. aggressive, heavy music as being aggressive and therefore the opposite of beautiful. You know, it can be... Powerful, but it's not beautiful. Whereas this is very, very beautiful, but also very, very, he- very, very heavy. And I, I
0: hadn't necessarily realised that about music. See, I thought you were going to choose Lordi's Eurovision w- winning. <laughs> there was Sorry. no chance of me choosing anything that had been entered into Eurovision, Chris. I, 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 def- I, I deflated the moment with a. <laughs> an I also thought that, I also not thump- thump-
1: I also saw them play it at Rock Verkta at just the perfect setting. It was, uh, they, were, they were second last on. Radiohead was on after them, um, who were amazing as well. But um, they were on a dusk and it was this incredibly hot day and the sun was going down over the stage and then this incredibly beautiful, just incredibly beautiful, powerful music was, yeah, it was really an amazing day.
0: <coughs> so. Lovely choice. Mm. don't I actually know, I don't know the piece actually.
1: We can put a link to it. I, I can't. I should have. We we need we need to get right sorted out before I can put it into the podcast. But we yeah. put a link to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I, what I'm. What we. What I may do is I may end up going back and um, adding links, having published the piece because we want to get the piece out. We want to get this podcast out on Europe Day first thing. Absolutely. Um, of course. Well, look. Um, oh, actually, Chris, it
1: is Europe Day. It's twelve minutes past midnight. Oh my. Oh, it is where in, you are, not where I am. Where I am yes. well,
0: yeah. Well, Happy Europe but, Day. Yes,
1: we are recording this across Europe, actually, across the yeah, European across time divide. zones.
0: Well, yeah. Happy Europe Day, everybody. Thank you, Chris. And happy Thank Europe you. Day to you, Steve. Thank you. I wish you all the very best for the coming year, and Thank I you. hope that all your dreams may come true. Specifically, well, what the, one, one specifically? In yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to choose a song by Kraftwerk <laughs> <laughs> and I boil it down to two and one is Trans-Europe Express cause because because <laughs> I mean come on, <laughs> <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean that really surely doesn't need any explanation yeah I think that's a winner already but the one I'm going to choose is actually the 12 inch EP extended version of Autobahn it has to be it has to because be. it's so great because that if there's a song that you can listen to while barreling down the autobahn it's autobahn the twelve inch version <laughs> i mean and you know for all sorts of reasons but i mean <laughs> my life is mostly spent barreling up yeah. and down the, the motorway between uh, from or to the channel tunnel that's what my life is and um when i'm not doing that i'm barreling down the motorway towards family in other far-flung parts of europe not that far-flung but anyway there's a lot of motorway driving in my (laughs) life and so there you go but um no i mean you know kraftwerk um very influential um right across the entire modern music scene oh christ Um, yeah and um globally not just in europe um but in a quintessentially European band, of course, um, and then of course there are the, the specific song there um, has all sorts of, I think, interesting significance and resonance. Uh, well, I think uh,
1: musically as well, the
0: message is about progress, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> about. So it doesn't stand still, you know. It's, it's, music it's, doesn't stand still. It's very much in keeping with what we were talking about at the top of the uh, of the episode about onward progress of civilization moving on from nationalism towards something greater and better uh, it comes from that exact same tradition we are looking at sparkly new railway stations and infrastructure we are looking at recovering from the war we're looking at putting all that behind us and moving forward into a new future and it was a very idealistic sort of vision of the 60s uh, the 50s and 60s, um, when when these people were w- young men and beginning to reach their career, but I'm coming, coming
1: from one half, but I'm coming from one half of a, of a divided Germany as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. So
0: there's I think a that's re- a great
1: choice. I think that's a really great choice. Actually,
0: thank you. Really... Well, there's a really there was a really good program on Radio Four um, where they went in. They had sort of did a deep dive into songs. And they, there was one on Craftbook recently which really um, uh, did, did a really good job of capturing what it was that appeals to a lot of people, especially in my generation, <laughs> men of a certain age. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I, I, if, I'll try and dig out the link to that and put it up because it's on iPlayer. It's very good, worth a listen. There you go. Oh, that would be great, yeah brilliant right <clears throat> next <clears throat> how many have you got for this one one two three four five six seven <gasps> eight nine ten eleven twelve 13, i've got a short a short list of 14 <laughs> Al- favorite place in europe <laughs> no no we've got
1: favorite city first
0: oh we've got favorite city first oh I've already you got. did
1: you did city and place
0: did i i've um, got city city i've got five
1: Five. Good can, grief! Can, can, can you just not do favor Have you been watching High Fidelity again? Is no, that
0: I'm going to do, do two. I'm going to okay. do two. Okay, I'll give you two. North on, and then. south. Well, they are a kind of inverse of each other. It's Amsterdam and Rome. Mm. Amsterdam. There's just something I think special about that city. I mean, it's it's. I love Amsterdam. I would say. It's yeah. not. It's not like. Paris or London, it's on a much more human scale, or at least it feels it. Although it's part of an enormous urban conglomeration, um, the centre of Amsterdam, it, it just has a wonderful feeling. Um, as you, it's because people live in the centre. As people That's live like there. I think. exactly. Yeah, people actually. And there's live water n- normal people actually live there. Yeah. yeah, and you're not about to get run over every second, except well, you are, but by bike mainly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, of course, it's much nicer being run over by a bike by some lunatic <laughs> pedaling. And ringing the bell frantically. No, Amsterdam is a is a is, a, is a just a really chilled and lovely place. I I, I really find it a, a, a really pleasant livable city. Um, and I, I like going there. Um, have you ever lived there? I have never lived there. No, no, no me neither. I've all thought it would be a lovely place to live. Yeah. Um. Then there's Rome. But um, as you mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a classicist, so Rome I, Rome I knew very well before I even went there. And then I got there and mm. I was like, hang on a minute, this doesn't look like it does in my mental picture, because my mental picture was about 2,000 years um, out of date. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, Rome is just, I mean, Rome's an amazing place. It's, yeah, just, I mean, it really it's is. just a
1: feeling you of just wander around, you wander around, around the corner.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. I remember literally just wandering around
1: the corner. We were going nowhere in particular, just having a wander around. Walking around the corner
0: and seeing the Colosseum, and just like, holy shit! Yeah, but what's even more exciting is when you know it's not just that. It, it, I mean, the Colosseum, obviously, is the Colosseum, and and there's nothing there's nothing quite like being in the in, in the Forum, uh, or rather, specifically yeah. up on the Capitoline Hill, uh, sitting under an umbrella pine, uh, if you can do that without being crushed by tourists, of course. But I mean, that that's just a very special sort of place. But then, you know, walking around. Um, walking around the medieval city and um which of course in in classical times um was well it did become built up obviously in the in the in the, in the first century BC but um had traditionally been left i mean the city was to the south of that and then hmm. you walk around and you you'll bump into you you'll see built into a street so there'll be a curved street and you'll see built into these medieval houses Columns and it's part of the theatre of Marcellus or something. It's just unbelievable. It's just it's wonderful to feel that you're yeah. still part of that continuum. That means a lot yeah. to me. I, I, I love that.
1: No, no, I totally understand. I have, I have similar, similar one, but not in this category.
0: So go on. What's your favourite city?
1: Um, my <laughs> you're gonna hate me, Newcastle. <laughs> my perv- Brussels. No,
0: boy, my I hate you. I I
1: absolutely, I abso- absolutely love Brussels. You know, I've lived here 13 years and I still find stuff I didn't know about well, all the time. That's and I wonderful. Think, yeah, you know, I've lived here 13 years and I still find, still find things I didn't know about it, still find new things. Uh, old things close and new things open. And I, I, I honestly have feel sorry for the tourists I see walking around the Grand Place for the 17th time on a, on a Sunday afternoon waiting, killing time to get the Eurostar because mm. I can understand that to visit... Brussels might not be a particularly exciting exciting city, but because it's its charms aren't obvious you yeah, know you've got bomb blast and stuff, but its yeah. charms aren't obvious it's not, um, yeah but when you live here, it's just and it's there's just endless stuff to to discover and endless stuff happening and endless stuff going on and it's not huge, it's a million people, so it's at a a reasonable you know a reasonable size you can walk across it in a day if you want to,
0: yeah
1: and um I mean I walk most places in, in Brussels. Um and yeah, it's just it's just absolutely fantastic. There's always something happening. There's incredible enthusiasm from people, you know, as, as a musician. <laughs> having lived in London before, getting people to come to your gigs is just absolutely impossible in London. And now they have this thing of paid well, I already did when I lived there, you know, thirteen or fourteen years ago that you pay to play, you know, you have to um you have to uh uh, buy t- buy tickets from the venue where you're playing, mm. and sell them yourself. You know, and that's your profit. Mm. And you make a loss if you don't manage mm. to to sell them. Mm. You know, and this just does, this doesn't happen here because their they value culture is mm. uh, cult- Yeah, culture is really deeply valued here, and it's seen as mm. something democratic, and an essential part of life, not just a, yeah. a commodity. But if you put a sign up outside a bar saying "live music tonight," people just come to it. People will come and see yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, and there's a real openness about it that I just absolutely, absolutely adore. Um, yeah. Plus the endless, w- endless multiculturalism, um, plus the beer. So, yeah, no, absolutely love it.
0: Well, I think I mean Brussels is a, is a is a terrific choice. I mean, I had a, I had a difficult time. Getting to like the place when I first moved to Brussels in the nineties—I'd be honest—it um, it took a oh, yeah, long time easy, to grow yeah. on me. Um, it's not an easy city, not by any means. But I must say, I think e- even more for the fact that I am semi-detached from it now, and I'm I'm only there during the weeks, and most weekends I'm away. Um, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it all the more. It's, it's, it's a really lovely city. Yeah, great place to live. Mm. So that then moves us to place, Place. your favourite place in Europe. I'm going to have to be much more disciplined about this. I've just got a ridiculously long list of
1: places. You just have to pick one and go with it.
0: Do I really have to do just one? You can do one or two. All right, I'm going to do two. Oh, no, I can't just do two. All right, two, two. two. I'm going to do two. (laughs) Right, right. Two. You can
1: publish the full list
0: if you want. Yeah, all right, I'll do the full yeah, list. Yeah, publish the full transcript. Oh, no, three. All right, two. Uh, the two places that I am going to pull out of this list <laughs> make me feel it's terrible that I can't do more. Selinunte <laughs> in Sicily is an ancient Greek city, um, a Greek colony in Sicily. You can go there. It's on the southern coast of Sicily. It's just a ruin. Um, but we walk through this city, and you realise it was a huge, thriving city that's just it just completely vanished. Because of course, what happened was it was um, conquered and destroyed, and sacked and ruined and left. Mm. And all you've got left are the ruins of this once thriving, beautiful city. And you can see the houses and the water. Um, channels and walls and then outside the city walls you can see where the harbour was now completely silted up and you can see where they had these enormous incredibly ostentatious temples um and you know and it's there and it's covered in wildflowers and there's the sea and and the smell of of, of, of the sicily and i mean it's just a wonderful atmospheric place but also just a shocking to, it's just shocking to look at this place and think how it must have all ended. So, yeah, there's one. Yeah, wow. That's um, good. And then my other, um, and this is a, it's so tough, but I have to choose it because this is my favorite place on the entire planet. And do you remember a couple of weeks ago I was telling you about my uh, Enid Blyton getaway? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, this is the place. This this is I try to go there every year, and it's a small island, a little rocky island off the north coast of Devon. It's in the. It's where the Bristol Channel meets the Atlantic Ocean. It's called Lundy Island, and ah, Lundy um, from
1: the fishing, fo- uh, shipping yeah, exactly forecast. from the
0: shipping forecast. And it's three miles by one mile, um, which is um, five kilometres by <laughs> one and a half you. in proper proper units. And um, there's a pub on it. There's a shop on it. There's a few little houses that you can stay on it. There's no roads. To speak of, there's no, there's no cars. It's or or it? car. There. It's a pub. Take a car there. There's a pub. Really good. What's pub the population well. of the haven't. Well, it's negligible. There's about probably about sort of 50 people on there at any one time oh, as that's guests. Then a pub.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the pub is you know it's, <laughs> it's 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 amazing, and they're all clustered in the very sort of one little corner of the island, and the rest of the island is there for you just to sort of walk about, and and there's no trees on it. It's just fully exposed to the elements. You can see all the weather mm. coming for miles, and miles, and it's just. Um, yeah, that's my favourite place on earth. So there you go. And um, well, you, know, you
1: probably, you've probably just about ruined it now because all seven Cake Watch listeners are going <laughs> to go there and overcrowd it. I was going to say, yeah, just keep it to <laughs> yourselves, all right? <laughs> I think, I think mentioning it on Cake Watch qualifies as, as keeping it to <laughs> ourselves. Don't worry. <laughs> especially, especially now, nearly an hour into an episode not about Brexit.
0: <laughs> I wonder how many people are still listening. Well, if you are, <laughs> why not tweet us?
1: <laughs> Okay, well, um, my place, I, yeah, my place in Europe is a Europe-wide one, actually, and it is uh, on any terrace or beer garden on a nice day, and it can be absolutely anywhere. I'll take thanks. It can be <laughs> in Paris, Amsterdam, Brussels, Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, in the countryside, off in the uh, off in the mountains.
0: I'll tell you the Marisco the Tavern on London's got a fantastic beer garden.
1: It oh, does sound lovely. I think I'd like that. You would. Um, I think I would like that. Yeah, or it can be in a little fishing village or a, or a hilltop town. I don't I don't care. It's a nice day and a nice table and uh, a glass of whatever the locals drink will do me.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I had some generic ones on my list too, but cathedrals and railway stations. They are amazing European places. They are, yeah. I pray us. Which of course is a horrible place, but in terms of what it represents, is get on any boat and go somewhere.
1: Yeah, well, I had I had uh, the theatre at Epidaurus was the.
0: Oh yeah, my, yeah, yeah. Was my sort of uh,
1: yeah. yeah. If I was going to pretend I'm more cultured than I am. One. Uh, I went what, on a classics trip there when I was fourteen, and oh, I did you, So did I. Yeah, yeah. It was just I went to a
0: school that did classics two fifty Well, we went to trip, We went to um, we went to sister schools, didn't we? Ah, yeah, we did, yeah. Um, yeah, there in Del-
1: Delphi as well. There's something... Total- I know Delphi's a tourist trap now, but... Well, I mean, it's
0: yeah, not- it's But Delphi to, always uh,
1: was a tourist trap, actually. I mean, Delphi exactly. in classical times was exactly. a tourist trap, so... Exactly. I mean, is it- there's something there's something pretty magical about Delphi yeah. so-, so a place in Europe you've never been but want to go? Yeah. Do- is there anywhere in Europe you haven't
0: been, Chris? There are lots of places in Europe that I haven't been, actually. Really? Yeah, there are lots of them. Um, I've put... I realised after I put this down that actually I have been there. <laughs> but not to the bit that I'm thinking of. It's a mountain
1: range. You just really you so just for the listener, Chris had this idea to do this, right? And he said, Okay, we'll do favourites, it'll be great, we'll do favourites, because we'll just skip through them as well, you know it won't take long. And so we'll be able to get loads and loads in, yeah? And then he wrote the list of questions, the list of list of things we'd have favourites of. And and then you know, Chris hasn't hasn't been able to choose a favourite and for a place in Europe you have never been to but want to go it turns out he has been there.
0: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but not really. I mean, so the place I want to go is um the Carpathian Mountains. The Carpathian Mountain range. And I realized that actually I had been to the Which one's that again? So the Carpathian is it's a it, it's a huge loop. It goes from the um s- south of Poland, the sort of Tatra yeah. mountains and 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 the north of um, Slovakia, through Ukraine, through um, Western Ukraine, down. Oh yes, the we big have to have
1: a Trans-Carpathian cross-border yeah. cooperation program. And then yeah. down
0: into uh, Romania and Transylvania. Mm. So that's the bit actually that I'm most interested by. So, so I'd love to spend some time, just really, you know, getting lost in, in the Carpathian range in in, in Western Ukraine. So I, I went to. So when I was. I, I when I, I did an interrailing holiday in the late eighties and I ended up um it must have been the early nineties actually because it was a really it was a really interesting day. I I went to the and um, I apologize for the pronunciation, Bieszczady Mountains in south eastern Poland. Um which are part of the Carpathian Range, and it's wonderful, mm. it looks like, it looks almost like the Scottish Highlands, but with trees, I mean, it's just really lovely. But I was there on the day that the generals mounted the coup against Gorbachev, so it was actually on what was oh. then the border of the USSR, so it was because yes. I hadn't actually been to, to to the Soviet Union at that point, um, except that the, to get there, to get to that part of Poland, you have to take take an old pre-war railway line, which actually travels into what ah. used to be Polish territory, but is now Ukrainian territory, um, around Lvov, Lvov, yeah, Lviv? Lvov, yeah, Lviv, yeah, Lviv, yeah, Lviv, Lvov, and um, Lviv, Lvov, and um, so um, oh, that wasn't that wasn't. I mean, there's a whole long anecdote which I won't um, share now because we're already running late. But a fantastic, what an interesting day living history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, yeah, that, that that is a part of Europe that holds a great deal of attraction and appeal for me. So well, I've I'd been to, I've to been to Lviv, Lvov.
1: Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and it was very beautiful. I really mm. liked it a lot, actually. Mm. Um, it Smelled of diesel, but apart from that, it was, <laughs> it was really, really lovely. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I forgot to mention it in the cuisine section. I love. I, you, you mentioned um, in one of yours about putting about putting fruit with the Georgians putting fruit with, yes. with with things, and I really love the Ukrainian thing of putting fruit with meat. Yeah, you know, putting cherries with beef and yeah. things like that. Yeah, I really really like that. I'm All yeah, like, that, more of that. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh we should have done Excellent. that was a question we sound. your favorite okay, let's go through these quick let's let's speed these up you obviously put you obviously put sound in here because you had one in mind and to make it impossible for me to think of <laughs> think of one you obviously had a clever one in mind when you wrote this not so. clever this go is, on, then. this is go just
0: self indulgent nostalgia really but um they're all about my memories of uh, spending time in germany as as a child really but um there are <laughs> There again, there are three. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> there's the there's the sound of church bells. That's a very European sound, and there's the I, I think of English church bells. That's that's a very specific sound. But then mm. there's the German church bells. They sound very different. And my um my memories of of, of childhood are, are are being woken by the the church bells because uh, my my grandparents' farm was right next to the church, and you'd be woken by this peal of church bells which is very it sounds very different in germany so that's a very kind of it's a it's a proustian moment of, of, of recollection when you hear those um church bells then there are the bongs <laughs> that you get on the target shop there's no it does they sound like quite unlike any other bongs that you get uh, like there's something very different about german bongs I see your eyebrows shooting it's through your the forehead. the
1: sound of the last listener turning off there.
0: <laughs> If you're still with us, you get a prize. I'm just going to stop there. i really, it's just so, this is ridiculously up myself. Seriously, if you're still listening, tell us what I just said and you'll get some sort <laughs> of prize. I'll, <laughs> se- I'll send you a, an audio file of the bongs.
1: <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if you had them. <laughs> if you had an audio part. i can find them okay well I, I knew that you'd obviously you obviously had something in mind when you wrote this so i i struggled with it a bit and um i've yes uh so the best i'd come up with is the sound of beer being poured into a glass or motif
0: of your evening yeah yeah absolutely
1: it has been quite
0: beery i'm gonna be um um yeah go on <the> sorry <laughs> um
1: Another thing I do like, though, is uh, train announcements in multiple languages. Well,
0: that was one of mine. I was I, was saying, I, I was being really, very disciplined.
1: I really, really, really like that. Yes. I, it must be something about being coming from an island yes. where that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, And wonderful. hearing,
1: yeah, getting on a train that goes across borders yeah. and hearing hearing the announcements in different languages and hearing which ones first change. And also hearing more and more nowadays that they do
0: English as well, which I
1: sort of think they shouldn't.
0: No, I know. <laughs> But you know but what? It's, but it's also very nice and kind that they do. But you know what? You can um, have that experience now in, in, in the UK and not just at St Pancras. Do you, do you know where? Mm. My, my mm. local, what, the mm. London terminus for my local line is Marleybone Station. Mm. And Marleybone Station does station announcements in Mandarin. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. The reason being that... Um, well, the l- thing, um, are you registered, if not, go home. <laughs> it might be. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't understand Mandarin. Um, it's because the they have trains that run to Bista Village that has um, uh, a big outlet kind of shopping centre or something that apparently is very popular with, with Chinese tourists. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And Arabic, they do it in Arabic as well. Yeah. So there Excellent. you go. But, yeah, no, I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. There's something very special about standing in a, in a big um, European mainline station and hearing enhancements in several languages. It's, it's, it's thrilling.
1: Okay, so book. Now, the book one is really annoying because my favourite book's by an American, so it doesn't count. <laughs> what is it? Um, it's The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Oh, My that favorite is a novel, good book. Favorite favorite
0: novel. Well, anyway. that's about that's about classics and about ancient Rome. So it's well, yeah. I suppose you it's go. actually about Europe. A bit it is thought
1: sort of about thought yeah. sort of about Europe. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: um, a good book.
1: But then all the other ones I came up with were um, just sounded like I was being wanky, like The uh, Social Contract and uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, I had Which a wanky. Yeah, I just thought I was being a bit wanky. So I had Proust <laughs> doesn't get Proust, wanky Proust, for God's sake. It doesn't. You know. <laughs> okay, no, Derrida. <laughs> <I'm wanky. laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I'll see if and Raisi Derrida. Let's go. Let's go the full hog. The full Derrida. I do have. I do have a European book which I very much uh, treasure, uh, which is <laughs> Europe as I See It by Romano Prodi. And the the reason I know, even for, even Europeans go, oh, "What, really?" Oh my God. Uh, the reason is that um, I was friends with. Um, I had a very very good friend called uh, in Scotland called uh, Francesco, and his dad was a translator, and his dad translated that into English, oh. and he also and he also lent us his apartment in pitigliano in Southern Tuscany, which is where I first had Pichu with wild boar ragu. Oh. I see. So, um, so yeah, he, I, I treasure that book, even though it's not very good. <laughs> I treasure that <laughs> because it reminds, of, it reminds me of it of Francesco, yeah. who I who I haven't seen for a long time, and it's his dad, and his, and uh, and beautiful particularly. Know, so, well, so What did you have on your on your non wanky list?
0: Well, I had, a, I had a I had a list, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a one. Do answer. one? Wow! Yeah, an actual favourite. That's the first an one. actual favourite. So, and also, um, it is very European, but it is by somebody who well, he was Anglo-Irish, especially British, um, a travel writer um, called Patrick Lee Firmer. Do you know Patrick Lee Firma? No, no. Patrick Lee Firma was an amazingly interesting man. He he died not that long ago. As, um, as a young man uh, in the 1930s, he was, apparently, he was a bit of a character at school and he was expelled. And after he was expelled from school, he decided that he would walk from... England from his school to Constantinople. Oh, wow! Which he did (laughs) um, in the in the early nineteen thirties. Good God! And he um, went on to have a very um, distinguished career. In in, during the war, he was he was a war hero. He he fought with the um, resistance in Greece as as a British Army liaison, and they captured the german commander on crete um and um i mean he's an amazing i mean an amazing person with the most astonishing but he wrote these wonderful um travel books um mostly about um greece and um but he he wrote this these two uh, well it was supposed to be a trilogy but he never got round to finishing the third bit so the first two bits, so I, I know I said it was one book, actually, it's two. It's called A Time of Gifts. which I is think you can th- have a
1: trilogy, that's okay.
0: So it, the first one's called A Time of Gifts, and it was about, it, that, that's his walk during winter from Rotterdam, from Hook of Holland, down to Munich. So it's the first leg of his walk. A bit and of then the winter. second is called Between the Woods and the Water, which is about his walk through Central Europe. It's through the dying Austro-Hungarian Empire. What happened was, it was very interesting, the first bit he would sort of just sleep in barns. And and, and the first book, there's a wonderful passage where he's in southern Germany, southwest Germany, and he ends up um, sleeping in the barn of a local farmer. And reading this, I mean, it could have been my great-grandfather. I mean, it could could easily have been my great-grandfather or my grandfather. But um, when he got to Munich, he had a letter of introduction. He ended up meeting um, some minor Habsburg royalty and from that meeting, he then got a, su- a succession of, of introductions to other Austro-Hungarian nobles. And he, he ended up spending 1933, <laughs> 1934, 1935 castle-hopping through the <laughs> Austro-Hungarian Empire, witnessing the end, of, the end yeah. of it. And he's just written this wonderful account of staying in these faded... Decadent castles in Transylvania and, and, and you know, all sorts. It's just wonderful. Oh, it's a wonderful amazing. evocation. I want of, to read of, that actually. So yeah, no, I really recommend that. That's just a terrific, um, terrific book to read. Just to capture a, a sort of moment in Europe just before things just went horribly wrong. Um, so there you go. That's that's. I'll that's say that about books written in twenty fourteen and
1: twenty fifteen. <laughs> oh, that's a great call. I really want to read that. I found it absolutely wonderful yeah I recommend it okay, TV program yeah so I've, got, so I've got all the way through this, I was thinking i could pick I could pick British stuff for all this, and, and you're right Britain is, Britain is European, but I tried to strike out a bit and yeah be e 27 ish uh with this, so I picked spiral. French yes. top
0: series. Oh my or my in laws just en- absolutely adore it. Yeah, they're absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Yeah.
1: Can you can you can you say it in French though? Because uh, I can't remember that it? word. Le, en les engrenage, en- yeah. Les en- It's so I find that word so difficult to pronounce for some reason. Um well because it's in French and I'm shit in French, but um yeah, i uh, I've so I picked that as my as my continental European T V program. Very um, good.
0: Oh, um, you know which what? I think is
1: just amazing. I think it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And Yeah. The way that it, the way that it, encor- well, it shows, it shows a different. Uh, not to be boring about it, but it shows a massive difference in the legal system. I mean, I find it shocking mm. how involved judges and prosecutors mm. are in, uh, in, in, in the investigations, case, in the, in the yeah. investigations. Yeah. 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 It's really, really shocking. You really see quite starkly the, you know, the, the difference in the systems, um, but also, I think it's just brilliantly acted and, and yeah. consistently fantastic.
0: So yeah. that's my pick. So my uh, my favourite uh, my favourite European TV program is Alo Alo. I'm joking. I'm, it's not. I'm, I'm joking. No, no, no. no. no I'm joking. You know, it's not. No,
1: no. You know what? Alo Alo. Fearfully, I think Alo Alo is a great TV <laughs> I mean, program. I, I, okay. I really do. I really do because it takes the piss out. Of- <coughs> Because it takes the pace equally out of absolutely everybody, except René. René's <laughs> the only sane person in it. But also, I think it's incredibly clever how it deals with languages. So the accent is the language. So when a French person is speaking German, they're speaking – there's no subtitles. It's all actually in English. But they speak English – with a German accent when they're speaking German, and they speak it with they try to speak it with an English accent when they're speaking to the two airmen, and, the two, and they can't understand the English of the two airmen.
0: <laughs> it's quite clever, yeah.
1: So I think I think actually for the way for the way it absolutely brilliantly deals with languages, and it also shows the kind of solidarity. Nobody involved in Allo actually wants any of the shit that's happening. They all just want to get through it, you know, without any anything terrible. Mm. Terrible happening, mm. you know? Um, yeah, and I think it shows solidarity. I, I I, think it's actually... You should go back and watch a couple of episodes. I mean, I, I, I actually... I actually really <laughs> like it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I really do. So that's a great choice, Chris.
0: All right. Um, I, no, no, well, what I'll was leave it your at that real then. choice? <laughs> what was your real choice? I don't know. I'm I'm not, I couldn't... I don't know. I couldn't really think of one. I mean, there are all sorts. So They're all the sort of the Scandi, Scandi Noir, aren't there? And... Um, What's the, Dan- what's the Danish one with the um, Borgen or the killing Borgen? Borgen's also good. Parliament. Yeah. yeah, that's very. Good that's indeed. a bit kind of. Yeah, it's fun. Well, it's a bit west. It's a bit west wing. It? Yeah, it's exactly. a bit of not Danish west wing. But it's very well written and acted. Yeah. yeah. Now I was thinking of those old Czech uh, cartoons that you used to get <gasps> as kids. That um, they were so exotic and and I thought. That that was something that was a, a glimpse into yeah. an exotic yeah. Europe that we didn't know when we were kids. But good good Euro,
1: another good European one is um, the Magic Roundabout.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know the
1: story behind the Magic Roundabout that it was a French cartoon. Yeah, yes. um, and when it was delivered to the BBC, it wasn't delivered with any scripts, and none of the people involved in it spoke French. So, uh, so they just made up plot lines <laughs> according to what was there.
0: I've heard, and, is that, that not a bit of an urban myth?
1: No, I heard that, I think it's true. And um that's why lots of them end really suddenly with you know no real resolution to the story or anything. But yeah, no, I, I remember was br- I was brilliant trying to put um <laughs> to, that's why it's also so psychedelic, because they had no idea what was meant to be going on. There
0: were a lot of there a lot of, of um European programmes we didn't even know that they were imports did we like Barber yeah, Papa yeah, we didn't absolutely. know that Barber Papa was, uh, was was actually French and meant in, it's French for candy floss and yeah. yeah yeah well um, look um, film let's do film ah. again I'm gonna I've got a long long short list but I've got one in particular well, you know what I've actually, I've actually I'm gonna break
1: my own rule here because I've got three for this on, one which was the most I've had um, and again I'm going continental I'm going European cinema okay um, so my first is Cinema Paradiso Oh it's on my list shortlist as well Ah, well that might be a winner if, bo- if it's on both shortlists that might just be a winner Alfredo, Alfredo Ah, uh, it just gets me
0: every it's time amazing Just an amazing just film um, Goodbye Lennon Yes, that was, that was also on my list, shortlist Which I think is absolutely Absolutely Brilliant and yes. brilliantly funny and superb Really
1: clever and a really obvious one, but I do absolutely love it, is Amelie. or the adventures of Amelie Blaine yeah. of Montmartre. Um, and I, I, I didn't choose Paris as my favourite place or um, favourite city. But I do love Paris, and I love Paris in the way that British people, <laughs> that are like all British and American people love it, because it looks like it is in the movies. It's, I love places where you feel like you're in the movies <laughs> when you're there, and bits of Paris, particularly Montmartre, I like mm. that, I think. Um, so, yeah, no, I really love that movie um, and also, I really love that movie because it 's a movie about kindness and you mm. don 't get much you don 't get mm. much in the modern world about kindness, and I think we can do a little bit more of it so mm.
0: well'm I'm, I'm, th- those are good choices, good choices and um, I definitely agree with you about Tinamar um, Paradiso and um, uh, goodbye Lenin two uh, just wonderful films um, i 'm going to go with Heimat. Have you ever heard of Heimat? No. Heimat was um, a very long film. It was more like, I mean, these days it would be looked upon as more of a mini-series. And that was how it was shown um, on on British TV. Um, But um, it was a film, a sort of autobiographical film by Edgar Wright about his um, family growing up in the Hunsrück, which is um, in the Palatinate in in the far west of Germany, uh, <clears throat> it was it caused a sensation when it was broadcast on BBC Two in the 1980s because it was, I think, the first time that many British people had really had a chance to see what Germans were like as human beings, also during the war years. It was it, what, it, what it did was it told this, it told the story of a family from the First World War. Through to the um, modern day, or well, 1980s, I think. Mm. No, maybe been to the 60s, but anyway, it 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 was a family saga, beautifully shot, beautifully acted, incredibly moving. And and for me, it was particularly significant because this family living in this village might just as easily have been my family, my mother's family. But um, and, and you know, there was the there was the slightly dopey uncle. Who ended up becoming a Nazi, but one of those kind of like he did it because he was stupid, not because he was evil. He was just mm. like, oh well, you know, and he didn't know any better, and they were parochial and they were rural, um, and then there were the nasty Nazis too, and then everybody else. And it was it was a it was a, it, it was a very human story and a way of telling people you know, showing people how normal people could end up doing these awful things, yeah. and also how normal Germans were affected by it. And what it was like, and that was something that I think it, it, it came at a moment in, 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 in Britain that I think people were ready to start mm. reanalyzing, reviewing their views of the Germans, and, and, and looking at Germany in a different light. And, and uh, for that, I think it was a very significant film. But I just for me, it was it was also just the, the, the significance of it as a, as a kind of a snapshot of. Rural agricultural life in Germany. Yeah, there you go. That's my choice. Hi Matt.
1: Ah, oh, great. I'd like to see that.
0: Well, put um, put, put a few evenings aside because it's a. Yeah, it's, an <laughs> equi- it's a commitment. Do you
1: like long things? You? Do you like long,
0: long, long, long podcasts? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've got one this week. You definitely have. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, and our final one is <laughs> <my> favorite poem. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I've got a I've I'm got a just... confession to make here, that oh, I'm not that fond of poetry.
0: Oh, Steve!
1: <sighs> I'm a musician. I like songwriting. So why well, is uh,
0: poetry effectively well?
1: Yeah, but a, why not put it to a tune? <laughs> what a wasted opportunity!
0: I've got three. I've it's, got like st- having an, it's like having an
1: unused lyric book, basically. Oh. I'd love to. Like, I'd love to. I know. I know. I'm wrong about this. I'm not saying that other people should be the same. I know I'm wrong about well, it. Well, we may have I lost. just never got we, it. We, and we, we, we will already have to lost all the, the
0: vast majority of our listeners by this point. Um, but
1: but with, with, with apologies to all the poets out there as well, there's like the head tilt and the poetry voice as well, <laughs> that's me off quite a lot. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, Steve. She tells me it's there. <laughs> so I'm going to hand over to Chris for this one.
0: You're not going to even submit one? The Iliad. Why?
1: Well, it's a poem, but you can forget it's a poem and read it as a story instead. Okay. Which I prefer. And it's a cracking story as well.
0: That is a cracking story. Yeah, I don't mind it. Well, I've got three that I'm going to offer you. I'm going to be really quick about them. One is by Bertolt Brecht, and I think I've already mentioned this in, in on the podcast, which is "alles wandelt sich," everything changes. And um, I'll put a link to it. It's um, I won't read it out or, or, or recite it. Uh, it's a very short poem. It's it's very clever. It's said it it says everything changes. You no, know? nothing's going to stay the same. Uh, which is something that you know it's we feel sad about that. It's a melancholy thought. That would be a good song actually, but. Um oh <laughs> I'm sure it has, but um <laughs> then he reverses it, and it turns into a like well, you know what nothing's cast in stone, no, you can't change what's happened, but you can um you can't undo what's hap- what what what's already done, but you can things will change and you can be part mm. of the change, and I think that's a very inspirational uh, yeah, yeah. poem for us in our current predicament that we're not going to mention the b word um the other uh well, the second poem i wanted to mention was by now this is this is this one's a family connection so we're not doing lie of the week this week no um, no no but here's 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 a lie of the week if you like which is that friedrich schiller germany's most famous romantic poet perhaps with the exception of Goethe, was an ancestor of mine oh really yeah but not, They're not really. I'm lying. No, he was. <laughs> he was. He was an ancestor of my cousins, but on the side that I'm not related to, which is really annoying because I'd really like to be descended from Schiller, but I'm not quite. You're know, not. Not. Not quite. Uh, not as quite. in not. As <laughs> in mean, actually not. I, I. It's a lie. I generally tell people that I am, uh, but it's actually a lie. But you know, it's one of those little white lies that's nearly, nearly true, but isn't. You know. It's not uh, but 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 actually not at all. <laughs> but he he wrote a poem. <laughs> Would you like to know the poem that I'm nominating? Mm-hmm. It's called "The Ode to Joy." Ah, no, and it was set to music. So there you go. It counts as it counts for you, Steve. Well, it's it a libretto the then. It's, it's a it's a lyric. It is a lyric. It is a lyric poem that was set to music by uh, none other than Ludwig van Beethoven. Von Beethoven, and who, who set it to, uh, who did something very radical. He he m- had a choral movement in his Ninth Symphony, which is now the European anthem. So there you go. Uh, that's my second poem. And my third oh, poem that's lovely. is um, a poem by the ancient Roman poet Virgil, who wrote the Roman equivalent of the Iliad. It's that was what he was aiming to do, which is the Aeneid. But it's not the Aeneid that I'm choosing. I'm choosing his poet, his poem called The Georgics, which is um, a, a romantic look at rural life. And there's this classic line in it. O fortunatos nimium suici si bona norent agricolus, which, as you know, Steve, means... <laughs> if I know like <laughs> Oh, how lucky you are, farmers, if you only knew your own good luck. And if there is a better... Nine ah, for yeah. Brexit than that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. that's absolutely perfect. that
1: is absolutely perfect. Well, I think that can qualify. I think that can qualify as our truth of the week.
0: There you go. Oh, four instead of We will we'll have truth of the week. Yes, suer si bona norin agricola. No one is lucky as you, farmers. If you only knew it. Ah, superb! <laughs> <laughs> you might convince me on poetry yet. Po- poetry is amazing because it manages to capture these difficult concepts and 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 things that are very hard to put into words, and yet somehow pe- the poet, a, a talented poet can crystallise and distil this into a, into a sentence or two. It's amazing,
1: mm. and put it to music.
0: <laughs> well, here here endeth the wankiest podcast in broadcasting history and podcasting we history. W- we've we set out on the- we set out on this thinking that it would be it would be
1: sort of fun, you know, and that been been like we it's it's be like we we're having a party.
0: <laughs> yeah, a party, a party where everybody else is in the kitchen and you're the only ones left hogging. <laughs> we're Gingler. the ones
1: dis- discussing Brecht, honestly, in the living room with nobody else. <sighs> but if you have listened this far, and um, well, firstly, you know, maybe you want to have a maybe you want yeah, maybe you want to have a little think about why you have. Um, but if you have, thank you very much, and I hope you hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back uh, probably next week but certainly soon
0: uh, with more screaming into the void of hopelessness on on brexit but so this has definitely cheered me up well good I hope it has i mean it's been it's been fun it has been a bit self indulgent but it's been fun and so if you have listened all the way through, let us know by telling us um, <laughs> and you know you can share your uh favorite things about Europe. Uh, Preferably well,
1: not, your actual favourite, not just a massive yeah, list.
0: Please send us your um, ten long short list uh, <laughs> under every item. And um, no, uh, I, I apologise. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I have discovered in this, though, is I've discovered that
1: Chris is much more German than I thought he was. Do you think so? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you had very high German quotient in your answers. I think. Maybe. Much higher than I expected.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a big chunk of my character. Um, of my family, my my.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely no. My no identity. Very much so. No, no. I think it's a positive thing. No, no. Yeah. Negative at all. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, everybody, and we will see you next week for uh, normal service resuming with Cakewatch. Watch.
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot for putting up with it all, Steve. I appreciate it very much. Uh, You're a great friend. Uh, Have a really good night and have fun editing this. (laughs) You too, I'll have huge fun. Thanks, Chris. All right. Good night, everyone.
1: Good night. Bye-bye.